Leadership is taking people on a journey where there is a vision, guidance and purpose. Good leaders lead with the heart as well as the head. Leadership means doing the right thing for the right reason, no matter how difficult it might be. You're listening to Leadership Unwrapped, a podcast where you will hear from people who are living leadership every day. Hi, I'm Patricia. And I'm Niamh. And you know, Niamh, it can be amazing that you can work with someone for many years and work closely even with them and not really have a sense of the wide breadth of experience that they bring before they started working with you, which is exactly what's happened in the conversation we've just had with Giles Warrington here in the University of Limerick. Yeah, like you definitely know Giles so much better than I do and you've always spoken so highly of him. And after speaking to him and just hearing the wealth of knowledge that he brings in so many aspects of life, um, I can really see why I absolutely love that conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I learned even a bit about sleep that I know I've heard him talk about it before, but just having that one-to-one with him about sleep has actually made me chill out a small bit more about being a mom of teens and the way they yeah. sleep. It was actually really worth listening to. Yeah. And for me, I know listeners were actually, were chopping and changing, but there was so much covered in this conversation. But for me, what really resonated was when he was talking about kind of the early stages of your career journey. Um, And obviously for me, when I'm doing my PhD now and hoping to kind of start a career in academia, it was really poignant for me to hear that from someone in such a, a high position as well. So, yeah. And he comes from coaching from a different perspective but brings it into his leadership and has some good insights even around leadership and negotiation. Um, I just think this is really worth listening to listeners. I think you'll get something for your own journey as a leader. So let's hope you enjoy it. I'm sure you're going to love it. Hi, everyone. We're absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Giles Warrington to our podcast today. So Giles is a colleague and a good friend who is widely experienced in the field of leadership and in coaching. So really looking forward to having this conversation with you, Giles. You're very welcome. Great to be with you, Trish. That's great. So so just um, by way of background for everyone, Giles currently works as the head of Department of Physical Education and Sports Sciences at the University of Limerick, but he hasn't spent all of his life in academia. He comes from an industrial background um, and high-performance sports background before he joined the University of Limerick. Giles has worked with over 100 Olympic, Paralympic, World and European medalists and their coaches. Giles has attended and worked with athletes and coaches at six Olympic Games, dating back as far as Atlanta 1996, and was part of the Irish medical team at four Olympic Games, well-travelled and well-experienced. Which hopefully we'll hear a bit about. Um, He was the head of services at the National Coaching Training Centre. Which services again? Sport, sport science sport. And, and athlete support services, effectively. Brilliant. In what we have come to know as the NCTC. Originally from Felixstowe in the east of England in Suffolk, he is now living in Ireland and we would call him a proud Irish soul. So we're really delighted to welcome you to our podcast today. Thanks. It's really a great pleasure to be here. So we might start maybe, I know I've given a short introduction to your background, but for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? Yeah, I suppose it's a kind of a strange career pathway, lots of zigzags and ups and downs. I, I actually, uh, when I was leaving school, um, went into banking, which I absolutely hated and did for three, <laughs> three, three years. 
my father was involved in international finance and tried to kind of push me that direction. Definitely stark contrast anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I didn't do great in my A-levels, the equivalent of leaving cert at all, because I wasn't really focused on university. And I got onto what they called an accelerated management training program, which is for university graduates. So I got a kickstart of three years. And um, I just loathed it, the whole thing. So I, I stayed for three years, and then I was thinking to myself, well, if I'm going to leave, I need to think about a pathway where I'm going to go. Mm. What am I passionate about? And I think, you know, that's the advice I always give to people, to focus on your passions. And sport was the thing that kept coming back. And uh, so I just researched sport and what you could do, and then I came across this term sport science. I thought, what the hell is that? And interestingly, I did no sciences at school. Oh. So I had no scientific background whatsoever. I'm now an exercise physiologist, <laughs> professor of exercise physiology. So I kind of researched it and looked at different programs and courses and what it was about and spoke to a few people. And eventually I took, took the leap and went in as a mature student and uh, went to St. Mary's College, Strawberry Hill, which is a strong oh, yeah. Irish That's right. Link. Absolutely. And I absolutely loved it. I just fell in love with sports science and science and everything science because I was learning it in a medium that interested me, athletic performance. And so I, I did that. And when I graduated, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm not sure. And one of my next door neighbors, who was a, a, a fellow student, said, did you see there was an advert for a job as a physiologist in the British Olympic Medical Center? And the deadline is tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, well, OK, I'll put an application in. So I applied for it. And much to my surprise, I got the job. And some of the feedback I got was my extracurricular activities that had a range of coaching qualifications. So it wasn't just having a sports science degree. Right. I had a much wider background. And that was mm. a big selling point. And that's really always struck with me. So I, I worked at the British Olympic Medical Center for three years and really loved it. I was going to leave after two and go and do a master's in Loughborough. But uh, my... my uh, head, my mentor, my gardener, who I'll talk about, Professor Craig Sharp, um, who incidentally became the first professor of sports science in UL, which is oh, a right, okay. pure coincidence. Uh, yeah. um, he said, would, would you like to stay on and do a PhD? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And it was with the British rowing team, which at that time were the, the leading rowing nation in the world. So yeah. I started that. But then um, in the meantime, an opportunity came up in Ireland to, to move to Ireland. And I kind of thought, you know, that looks interesting. You know, let's let's uh, kind of delve into it. So this position at the National Coaching Training Center came up and I decided to apply for it. And to my surprise, I got it. And I thought mm. probably I was going to come for a couple of years and, you know, 30 years plus later, I'm still here. All right. So, and, and then really, so working there and then I had the opportunity to move into academia initially at Dublin City University for 10 years, commuting from the Limerick area to Dublin. Oh, wow. And then came back home, as they say, um, in 2015. Right. And you've worked with a lot of elite athletes here, you know, certainly in your career. Can you tell us what it's like to work in that space? Yeah, it, they're a different, very different breed. I think, you know, you have to be very focused um, in terms of what you do and the sacrifices you have to take to get to the very top in sport. Mm. And I'd say not, not only just working with the athletes, but very much working with the coaches alongside them. And, you know, the, the, the role of the coach can never be understated. You know, they have such an important role. You know, the athletes get all the plaudits and quite rightly because of the sacrifices mm. they make. But really, the coach has such a, an integral role to play. So, you know, it, for me, it was just a labor of love working in that space and that domain, just seeing these amazing individuals and the sacrifices they make and, the, you know, dealing with adversity, disappointments yeah. and uh, uh, what I call the bounce back ability factor, being able to 
overcome a disappointment, a major, you know, uh, uh, disappointment in their performance, and then reflecting, taking stock, replanning, regrouping, and then moving on and getting better. Yeah, and I, I think that's a lesson for life, to be honest with you. Totally. I mean, it must be hugely devastating to train so hard, to give so many hours to something, and it, it's thousands of hours. It's not just a couple of hours, and then not to, not to win yeah. and to, and to come to terms with that. To pick yourself back up in, in often a quite short space of time for the next competition. So the coach is probably pivotal in that, I take it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it, it is a learning process. And I think things like self-reflection, because, you know, it, the, there's a famous coach who said, uh, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Yeah. So you really need to... At the end of each season, I would say, whether you've had a fantastic season or a poor season, you need to reflect, take stock. And as a very, very good friend of mine who I often quote, Liam Morgan, who was given an honorary doctorate by UL mm. uh, last year, he talks about the WWW, what went well, and PIGS, personal improvement goals. So okay. what went well over the season? So write them down. And then where are the areas I need to improve? And we should always be striving for improvement. Yeah. Now, the margins are very small. But if you if you sit back and do what you did the previous year, you're going to be lost. Yeah. So you've constantly got to strive that. The Japanese use this term kaizen. And if you think of Japan as being the most technologically advanced nation in the world, and it means continuous improvement. So mm. you may be the best now, but unless you strive to improve all the time, you'll be left behind. Okay. There is just so much, I know you alluded to it there, but there's so much that you can learn from sport on a personal level. Like those traits that you're describing, the resilience, the dedication, that reflective piece, like it's it's huge for your everyday life as well, I would imagine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, there's a, a famous um, manager in sport called David Brailsford, who worked with the uh, Sky Cycling team and has worked with some very high level groups in sport and he came across came over this idea of marginal gains so he talked about it as a bicycle that you can trim certain things to improve the aerodynamics the, 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 the effectiveness and the accumulation of those marginal gains will lead to greater performance and like what I often say to athletes is it's far easier to improve five things by point what five of a percent than one thing by two and a half percent because the, the margins are so small mm. so be striving to look for those small marginal improvements to your overall performance and i think that applies to all groups and yeah. uh, areas and they accumulate i think you yeah, know absolutely. that's the piece but you mightn't see it all the time but it, it is accumulating but, but striving for that continuous improvement yeah. I think is the, yeah. the challenge yeah yeah. So tell us um, a little bit more, Jez, about your PhD. So you said it was with the British rowing team. Yeah. That's so right. as I say, my career, when we talk about my career, it, a lot of it was by luck and accident. So yeah. it's probably not the mine advice. Too. No, mine too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably not the advice I'd be giving to somebody now. But, it, you know, I, I just think I've been very lucky in my career. Um, so I had the opportunity, as I say, I was going to go to Loughborough to do my master's and to do this PhD. So it was a, a, a kind of a part-time PhD, but it was very much around my work. So it's almost like a professional doctorate, if you like. Right. So um, it was around the team and their preparation. It was very much around altitude training. So one of the things athletes do is that they, they go to altitude where the air is thinner. It's all to do with what they call hypoxia. And the, the, the idea behind it is if you go to a, a higher altitude where the air is thinner, 
um, your body adjusts and adapts. So in other words, you produce more red blood cells to allow you to carry more oxygen. I'm, I know I'm getting into the science No, no, it's now. interesting. But, you know, as an endurance athlete, it's mm. about you know, oxygen utilization, utilization of oxygen and oxygen availability. So the principle behind is if you go to a, an altitude where the air is thinner, you, this hypoxic environment, you produce more red blood cells. So when you come back down to sea level, you've got more of them. The air is at its normal uh, uh, concentration and your performance will be better. Okay. So um, I went to uh, the Austrian Alps, a place called Silveretta, which is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, and we were uh, based in this hydroelectric dam and the, we were staying in these huts, which were literally at the base of the dam. And we'd be up there for four weeks at a time, middle of nowhere, in the Alps, and effectively training, sleeping, eating. Wow. And uh, it was a kind of an incredible experience, you know, but working with really world-class athletes as well. Hugely, sorry, hugely different from being in the bank. Just need to say that. <laughs> just, just, just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> but that's what I was going to say. I know now, like, even from the introduction there, we know that you've worked with, you know, over 100 athletes at that level now. But at that time, that must have been so surreal for someone with such an interest in sport to be able to to work with athletes of such a high standard and also experience. Oh, yeah, and, and even working with people who were your idols yeah. two or three years before and that was quite daunting mm, and imagine. you know how how you deal with that and you know you're giving advice to them and huge responsibility i can remember when i started in the olympic center i'd literally been there a week and there was a big training camp going on so all the staff were going to the training camp and i was left to man the fort mm -hmm. and there was a kind of a, a key group coming in and i was still learning the ropes and it was you know you literally you learnt on the job but fortunately, you know, I had phenomenal mentors. I mentioned Professor Craig Sharp, who who, who sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago. But he he was the the pioneer, the godfather of sports science in the UK. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, he he trained as a vet originally, and he was involved in sport as an athlete himself. And a, a very famous leading coach called John Anderson was asking questions about physiology and training, and Craig couldn't fully answer them all. So he decided to do a vault face and change his career and become a sports scientist rather than a vet. Now, he worked with elite animals, so he had a lot of the understanding. He became the, the first um, lecturer in sports science in Birmingham University in 1970. Right. So um, he's just, just an amazing individual, but his, his background is so vast. But he's one of these people who had a – I mean, he was incredibly intelligent. His, his wealth of knowledge in the area was incredible, but you could ask him the most basic question – and he would bring it down to that level and he would explain it to you and he'd probably get a piece of paper and write a diagram. Mm. And there was no airs and graces. He wouldn't look down his nose and say, well, why don't you know that? And, you know, so the number of people in my area and profession who've been influenced by him because of his approach, that nothing was uh, too, too minimal mm. or he'd always give you the time, even though he would be incredibly busy. And for me, that's a true mentor. Yeah. And, you know, so I was very, very, very lucky to have an outstanding mentor. Yeah. I think that's the joy of our careers is that we, if we're lucky, we have exposure to these amazing minds who are natural pedagogists, natural teachers, and who mentor just through their being and how they are in, in the conversation and relationship with you. It's not always like that in academia, but but certainly there are moments and when, when you come across them, you treasure them. I, yeah. I, I would feel the same in relation to that. Absolutely. Can I ask you what drew you to coaching? You know, I mean, you love coaching and you're passionate about it. You talk about it a lot in our conversations. So what was that initial draw? Yeah, I suppose, again, it was when I was doing my sports science degree, there was the opportunity to do extracurricular coaching courses. You know, you, you did them 
voluntarily. Yeah. And I found, you know, I was, you know, I, I, I played sport at a reasonable level, but I was never going to be an elite athlete. So for me, I got my drive from being involved in a coaching environment and a support environment. And, uh, and that's where I thrive. So I, 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 you know, I get huge pleasure out of seeing individuals, not just athletes, mm. individuals performing to their potential. That for me is a major achievement. And you know, people often say, well, what is coaching? Coaching is effectively uh, facilitating somebody to maximize their performance. Mm. whatever that performance is. Yeah. And again, I mentioned uh, Liam Morgan. And uh, Liam is a great coach developer and coach educator. And when he's working with coaches, for example, they could be Gaelic coaches or hurling coaches, he says, I don't, I don't uh, work with hurling coaches. I work with people who happen to coach hurling. Right. Okay. So it's very much about the personal, the people, first and foremost. So you, you are working with them. You are facilitating them to achieve their potential. Yeah. Okay. And you, you work in a leadership role now that's that's busy. I mean, we, we both have similar jobs in that we lead very large and busy and productive and highly ranked schools. So, I mean, there's quite a, there is an elite academic piece to the work that we do with our colleagues. So what insights do you think you translate from that career and that background into your leadership now? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think in the roles we do, they're very demanding, but you have to have good people skills. You have mm. to be able to work with people. You have to appreciate their needs. You have to deal with difficulties, conflicts. Um, but I think you have to have a clear vision and a clear goal in terms of what you want to achieve. It's probably a slightly thankless role in some yeah. ways. And But I'm kind of a bit strange. When I came to UL, I knew in my mind's eye I wanted to leave the department okay. because there were things I wanted to achieve within that. So I think it's having a clear plan and vision is going to be an important part of that process. But it's it's how you engage and communicate people. So there's people who have influenced me. I remember um, hearing a, an interview uh, with a, an academic um, who's, who's a professional mediator called Stuart Diamond, hmm. based in the States. And he wrote a book called Getting More. And I suppose he's the guy that they bring in when all, everything is lost. So I remember, if you remember, probably about 15 years ago, all the scriptwriters in Hollywood went on strike. Oh, yes. So yeah. he was the guy that came in. Mm. Now, some of the things he talks about, he, he says, um, you can't begin a negotiation until you see the picture in the other person's head. So in other words, we come in with a, a view, this is what I want. But unless you can have an appreciation of what the other mm. person is looking at, how can you begin that negotiation? Mm. And the other things he talked about is the, the power of questions. So rather than make a statement, you ask a question. Because if you ask the question, you see the picture in the other person's head. Yeah. So I, I, those kind of things stick with me. And there are a lot of the skills around coaching. And, you know, they're, they're soft skills. So again, I mentioned Liam Morgan. So when I first met Liam, Liam and I worked at the National Coaching and Training Center. I was this hard sports scientist, a physiologist. It was all about numbers. And then there was this fluffy, woolly fella coming in, <laughs> talking about, you know, feelings. And, and I thought, well, this guy's from Mars. Mm. But we've, we've almost morphed into each other. And as his wife would say, we have a bromance now. Yeah. So, so, but um, but, but I, I learned a lot from him. So he would have been a big influence as well. Mm. And it's really shaped my thinking, how I work with people, how I engage with people, how I understand situations. Yeah, I, I think the nature of leadership has changed 
so much, and I mean, we talk about this in, in the work that, that I do, um, but this, the authoritative leader really is in the past and the, and the hero leader, the one out in front being the, you know, mm. the champion. It's changed so much. There's more negotiation needed. Um, more, you can't always have democracy, but certainly m- more democratic ways of working. And that's, that's exhausting, actually. Um, yeah. Do you find that in your work? Do you find yeah, it's like yeah, that? Yeah, it, it can be. See, I, I'm very much a humanist in nature. That's mm-hmm. that's where I come from, and um, I tend to frustrate, you know, colleagues probably most definitely PhD students because I tend to answer a question with five questions. Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, what do you think yourself? So in other words, you know, it's it's about empowerment and 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 doing that. But yeah, yeah yes, it can be exhausting. Um, but I I would certainly be. I don't like hierarchies. Mm-hmm. I, I I like relatively flat, flat structures. I know at the end of the day. Somebody has to make the ultimate decision, yeah. and that's you. Yeah. But and you can be overly democratic at times, mm-hmm. and, and in other words, you get nowhere. So, but you do need to try and bring people along with you, and yeah. I suppose that, that that's what I strive to do. And I, they taking a sport analogy, they always talk about the great snooker players. They're always playing five shots ahead. So, in other words, they're not just looking at the shot they're about to play. They're thinking, well, what's going to come next, and where am I going to be in five shots? So, I always try and do that myself. That you know. We're here now, but where where do I want to be in the longer term? Yeah. And a great friend of mine, the sports psychologist Neve Fitzpatrick, who is the sister of uh, Dara Fitzpatrick, yeah. the uh, helicopter pilot who sadly uh, died in a horrific uh, incident. She always says to me, "Start with the end in mind." Yeah. So, in other words, where do you want to get to first and foremost, and then come back to here? I th- I think that's hugely important. Because the nature of our work can be what I call interrupt-driven. And it's, you know, there's so much like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hate relationship with emails at the moment because there's just so many of them. But so you can be in that interrupt place. It's very difficult to think strategically then. So mm. it's about having that mindset about looking to the five shots ahead, but also making the space yeah. to think about the five shots ahead. That's also important in the dynamic. Yeah, and I would have to say I haven't cracked it. And, you know, I think now you know, we're having a conversation. I'm going to go back to my office after this and I think, oh, God, there's all these emails to answer. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think you need to be a little bit selfish and say I need to factor time for critical thinking. Mm. And unfortunately, the jobs that we do as leaders, it's very demanding. You have to please people as well. But sometimes you need to say, well, you know, you can't please everybody all the time. You need to factor time. So have that critical mm. space, having downtime. So, you know, red time when it's not emails or meetings. This is, I need, you know, to do my job effectively. I need critical thinking space. And it's easier said than done, but it's something that, you know, I'm very aware of and something that I need to improve mm. and seeking that continuous improvement. Yeah. So, but also, the, sorry, <laughs> also the space to think about that interpersonal piece as well. Like I know we have a lot of listeners that would be based within schools and based within yeah. education. And like, it's something that I've heard and now obviously I'm in a leadership position myself the same way that the two of you are. But like from even speaking to school leaders would say, because it's easy to get caught up in that administrative piece and the pressures mm-hmm. and the accountability and all those For sorts sure. of things like the emails that you're talking about, it's easy to get caught up in that and forget about the person-centered aspect, you know, I just putting into the school context, I know I've spoken to leaders who've said, you know, that they might go through a day, like no one would actually know if they were there in the school or not because they're so locked up in their office and not out there dealing with the students or not out there dealing with the, the staff and the teachers and waving hello as they're coming in the gate and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the 
the human-centered part of leadership that can get swallowed up a little yeah. bit if the job becomes, you know, that too busy because of the administration yeah. and the accountability. You, you could spend your life firefighting. Yeah. And if you wanted to, you could spend the day on emails. So you, mm. you need to block that off. And I suppose some of the things I learned, um, you need to... Uh, your, your key administrator, get them to manage your diary. And I thought, God, that's really strange. I wouldn't like that at all. But I wouldn't go back on it now. Yeah. So having somebody to manage your diary who understands the way you work. So if there's presses for meetings, they'll say, well, no, actually, you need that space to work on mm -hmm. these areas. So, you know, factor in time at critical stages. So it's, I suppose it's really looking at the totality of the job and saying, um, I, I can use a traffic light system. So there's the, 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 the need to do, the nice to do, the not to do. And so you really need to be focusing on the needs first of all, and there might be some nice bits you want to do as well. Um, and then the not to do's, that's delegation. And again, I suppose a great bit of advice I was given, taking over said as department, never say the leave it with me statement. Always try and find, get the person you're with to come up with a solution. Yeah. So it comes back to my humanism approaches. Well, what do you think yourself? How do you think we can resolve this? You know, yeah. That kind of thing. Rather than say, leave it with me. Because if you're leaving it with you, that's another thing to add to your to-do list. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it, it, it's doing that. The power of delegation, and I don't think we'll ever, I'll ever master it, but you have to have trust in other people. And in many cases, they'll do it a lot better than I will. Yeah. So it's having trust in people to do that. And I think linked to that is surrounding yourself with positive people. Yes. It's so important. Yeah. I get so uplifted when, because as I say, obviously I haven't, you know, I haven't been head of department, like they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm at the start of an yes. academic career. Yes. <laughs> it will come, it will come. <laughs> but I do get so uplifted because, you know, sometimes because of the fact that I'm at the start of an, a career in academia or wherever it is, I suppose, that I that I do head, I sometimes I think, am I a bit idealistic, you know? But then I talk to people, I get to talk, speak with people like you who have so much experience and are in such a, a high position, but you have that humanist piece that seems to be at the centre of your work, and I think that's so um, promising. Yeah. And it ties in kind of what you were saying there, Patricia, that people are thinking more in that lines of thinking when they're talking about leadership like I think I think it was the Brené Brown podcast I was listening to but they were saying that work used to be led by the hands now at the moment it's led by your head but going forward it's going to be led by the heart and that's yeah. the way that, that. It, that it's moving yeah um, I love that and it seems to be something that kind of what's interesting is it seemed to resonate with you very early mm. on in your career from mm. the way you spoke about it when you said that it was the coaching piece that was key to you getting yeah. that first position in the area so I like it could that have been kind of a pivotal yeah. moment? Yeah. Was here a very yeah. resonating? I mean, I think I think on that point, what I would say to people in, in an early career in any area is seize the opportunities available to you, mm -hmm. because they're going to be the things that allow you to stand out to the to the rest. Yeah. So you know, you think you know, you you come out of university, you're applying for jobs, you're in a competition, but if you've got extra items, unique skills, skill sets on your CV. People are going to say, wow, this, yeah. is, this is good. So yeah. seize those opportunities. And I think there comes a time where it almost pivots and you, you know, you're, you're progressing in your career. And then you need to start saying, okay, I need to probably say no to that now because mm -hmm. I can't do that. But So it does shift and change. But I always say to you know, <clears throat> students, you, know, you, you often see ones who are going to excel because they're always putting themselves forward to volunteer or participate because mm -hmm. they want to learn, they want to engage. And um, so, you know, I, I think that's that, that would be a strong piece of advice is to look at the opportunities. Now, obviously, they have to be related to what you want to achieve, but you know, seize, seize the moment, mm -hmm. seize the opportunities that you could have. Yeah. Yeah. 
I feel the same. I feel like you. I feel very blessed to to have the career that I've had. And if you'd asked me twenty years ago, would would I've had this success or or done what I've done, I wouldn't have imagined that. But when I look back on the one factor that has brought me to this point, I think it is taking the opportunities when they came at the right time, and and sometimes wondering, God, have I taken on a bit too much? And but later on, when I would have maybe gone for jobs or, or, or been recommended for something, it would have been that opportunity that I didn't know everything about, but said, I'll give it a shot and, and do my best in it. And I learned from it um, that brought me to the point. And sometimes even now in a leadership role, you open up the space for people. You think this is a great opportunity and they say no. And I mean, and that's fine. Mm. They're, they're, but, but I go away thinking, it's a pity. You know, the, there's an opportunity there that may support you in the future for a leadership role if that's something you're interested in. So it's about being clever about those type of opportunities, I think. And I agree with you completely. You reach a point then where you're saying no because you're looking at something like finishing a PhD, for example, and you say, so now I'm in the final stretch. I've got to put the blinkers on and mm. complete this for the currency. So you're making these weighted judgments mm -hmm. depending on the stage you're mm. at. Yeah. I, I think as well, it's a really valid point, but as your career progresses, you're kind of moving away from that kind of achievement-driven approach. And it's very much about mentoring. Yeah. And it's about supporting. So agree. it's <clears throat> rather than saying, I need to lead this, this, and this, you might be saying, well, this could be something really good for you. I'll support you. Yeah, I'll yeah. guide you. And it's, it's being willing to do that and not try and control all the pieces. Yeah. And I find myself saying when 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 colleagues are looking, well, but when I'm seeing a potential and I'm saying, go for it, I'll be at the back. I'll I'll lead from the back a bit, mm. and you lead from the front. So it's almost like a co-piloting, because it's a mentoring, and you know in your head as a leader, it will really only take a month for that, and the person will be yeah. will be, but they don't see it in themselves. But but they know that you're there. They know to you're support there. And guide. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the 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 ties are slightly severed, but if there's something they're yeah. not sure about, a good mentor will always be there to guide yeah. you. Yeah. And I like that. I mean, I, I have colleagues who are in senior roles uh, that sometimes you, you, you just have this conundrum that you can't crack and you can, you, you know, you can go and say, look, this is it. And, and open up the space for a bit of mentoring. And normally they won't give you the answer. They'll say, yeah. okay, how did you end up here? And, and what are the factors that brought this? And, uh, what do you think mm -hmm. can and, change? And I, definitely mentoring is a two way street. I'm, I'm always striving for mentors, people who I can learn from yeah. and gain more from. Yeah, and so and you know they, they don't necessarily have to be senior colleagues. Mm -hmm. They could just be somebody in a different domain yeah. who can mm -hmm. add value. And I suppose I'd be very much a reflective practitioner, so I'm always looking for feedback to to, yeah. to actually see well how can you improve. Yeah, and I I was at graduation last Monday, and I I was with an, with um, colleagues from the business area, and one of them was talking about the area that he lectures. I was like, oh my god, I really want to go in and do. It was on ethics in yeah. fiscal ethics, and I was like, I really want to go and 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 listen to that. Mm. And I just said, oh, I'd love that. And he said, just come in. I thought. This is amazing. So I'm going to be learning about that this Very semester. Good. But it's that piece about also opening up to say there's an area that I could learn more about that uh, I'm up for. But the really beautiful thing for me was that the other person was so confident yeah. in their work that they were saying, come on away in and see what you think. Mm -hmm. Love I, that. I think linked to that as well is sometimes just admitting you don't know stuff. So yeah. it, it's it's funny. You go to, I go to conferences and sometimes uh, you know a, a presenter will be grilled and they clearly don't know the answer. 
and they're trying to kind of work their way mm. through it and tie themselves up in knots. Well, maybe the easiest thing is to say, look, I actually don't know the answer, but Professor Y is in the audience who is an expert in this. They may have a comment on it. Yeah. So I think it's admitting what you don't know as well. Yeah. It's super liberating to be able to admit what you don't know. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. um, and, and I know I've talked to you before about Edith Eager's work in The Gift, and she talks about the prisons that we make in our minds, and this is one mm. of them, yeah. that I have to be the expert. So if yeah. somebody asks me and I don't know, I feel diminished. Whereas she's saying that's just a that's just a cage. I, I hate the word expert. Yeah. Because expert implies you know everything, but nobody knows everything. We're constantly learning. Yeah. So ex, yeah. you know, you, you're not an expert in anything. I don't think. So I, I kind of sometimes I might be called expert, and I'm very yeah. uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Because if if you the day when you stop learning is the day you're gone. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, the one thing I like about the way we're working now is that we're becoming much more open to coaching. Mm-hmm. And we're beginning to see the value of mentoring and not to see it almost either in a hierarchical way, but in, in a knowledge way or in a skills way, yeah. you know. And I know when I took over his head, um, our dean at the time was saying it's really good to to speak to an experienced head who has had those curveballs land on their desk. And you were that person, Giles, mm-hmm. and I think you provided mentoring in a way that... Um, didn't make me feel out of my depth in the, in the role. It would call on what you already know. Um, but then there are pieces that you have done, so you cut through it much quickly to say, look, this is how I've done it. This this may be useful to you, but it may not work in your team. Um, and that generosity in the system, I think, is growing. And that's yeah. really important. And I think probably what I was doing is really just sharing knowledge that I gained from others as well. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about coaching. So you talk about coaching in, in business. In the early stages, it was very much performance orientated. Mm. So we'll bring a coach in to increase our turnover or whatever. But now it's becoming much more holistic and this word well-being is coming in more and more. The companies are looking to say, well, if we can focus on the personal side, the well-being of our staff, that's going to improve their human performance, which will have an indirect effect on productivity. So it's not just about uh, productivity Per se, it's a that's an indirect thing, and you know this this whole area of corporate social responsibility is a huge area. In it. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I do some work with companies uh, around the space, particularly at the executive level, and you're very much seeing now it's investing in the people, it's yeah. investing in in a holistic approach to what they do. Yeah. Which is important. Yeah, because we're learning. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at the dark side of, of culture, of workplace culture. People know that. But I also look at things like stress and burnout. And, and uh, I know I, I'm I'm like the, the woman from Killing a Scully saying, I'm not in the habit of repeating myself. <laughs> but I'm going to repeat myself now for a minute and say that um, a lot of the burnout doesn't necessarily come from the amount of work. It comes from the lack of agency or voice about your work. Mm-hmm. That's the catalyst that puts people over. Um, And we really need to pay attention to that. And coaching allows us to have the space to do that, to begin Mm -hmm. to look at what's the pattern. And is it is it the amount of work I'm doing or and sometimes it is. Sometimes it's about gaining the voice and saying it is too much. I need to reshape this. Mm. Or is it uh, the way that I'm thinking about my work or, you know, how much of it is imposed? Mm. How much am I? a perfectionist adding to it, etc. There's so many complexities in this. And I think the way that we're thinking about coaching now allows us to have those conversations, which leads to the well-being. Yeah. That's and the piece. As, a, as I said, for me, coaching is about people. It's about facilitation. Yeah. So it's really, you know, having a coach is not somebody to give you opinion. It's to help guide your thinking and your discussion. Yeah. And sometimes that involves uncomfortable silences. Yeah. And uh, again, 
talking to Liam, who I keep referencing, he, he said to me uh, once, you know, don't speak unless your words outperform the silence. And it's so yeah, true. Huge. How many times do people just keep talking, keep talking, keep talking? You see it with coaches on the sideline. It infuriates me, you know, that yeah. they're, they're expressing themselves and they're gesturing. Is it for the camera or for the benefit of the, of the players? Because the players aren't listening. So even things like, you know, one of my colleagues, Ian Sherwin, uh, is involved in coaching research and he talks, uh, looks at things like, what can you influence at half time? And the evidence would strongly say that the, the, the players, the athletes, are only going to pick up one or two things. Yeah. So you should really just, you know, give them a chance to recover a little bit and then emphasize what are the two key things we're going to do in the second half yeah. rather than 50 million things and then they're not, they're not taken on board. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes silence is a good thing. Yeah. Brevity, so more is less and less is more. Yeah, yeah. A clear message. That's it. Yeah, clear message, isn't it? That's huge. And I suppose uh, when you're talking about departments or teams, it's it's a clear message, but it's a shared message. Yeah. You want people to buy into the the message mm. and the culture. There's a a great Kenyan proverb, which says, if if you if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. Wow. So you know, wow. it's about bringing. If you want, you know, if the if, if you've got a long game, sometimes you need to react to a situation, and it's reactive. Yeah. Okay, to, to get the outcome. But if you're looking at a long-term plan, you've got to bring the team with you. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really powerful. I, th yeah. I think that's really powerful. I also think we're going to have to chase Liam Morgan down, see if he'll join us <laughs> in the podcast. Oh, no, but, yeah, no it, sounds, it sounds really interesting. Can I move slightly laterally because I want to learn loads about this because I need to. Let's talk <laughs> about sleep. Okay, so you're, um, you're a researcher with a lot of interest in sleep. So tell us a bit about what drew you to that research and, and the type of things you look at. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So it goes back to my sport role. So working with the Irish Olympic teams um, quite often Olympic Games are in far off climbs so I remember going right back to 2000 so the Olympic Games were in Australia in Sydney mm. so as the kind of lead sports scientist with the team one of my key jobs was a question that was set to me was how do we get our athletes from Dublin and Ireland to Sydney with minimum disruption minimum fatigue to allow them to get into the final preparation as quickly as possible to optimise their performance so First thing I had to do was a lot of desktop research around jet lag, travel yeah, fatigue. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, there probably wasn't a huge amount around sport. It was more commercial. Now, there was more because obviously everybody was going to the Olympics. So this work began to evolve. And the more I kind of read into it and looked into it and developed strategies and things, I thought, God, there's a lot to this. Mm. And so that was what really captured my imagination. And then moving into sleep. Okay. So, you know, um, the, the way I look at sleep is often if I'm, if I'm doing sessions with groups, I'll actually um, say, okay, hands up who sleeps. Okay. And you hope that everybody's hand will be up, otherwise you would have the uh, ambulance yeah. <laughs> out, outside. And then the next question I ask is, how many do you get enough sleep? And generally, about 10%, to 15% keep the hands up. Mm. So what I would say about sleep is sleep is the most important behavioral experience you have in your life. So we don't fully know why we sleep, but we do know it's important. There's the evolutionary factors going back to the caveman and protection in the caves at night when the predators were out. But what we do know is restoration and recovery mm -hmm. is a key part of why we sleep. Okay. And, um, you know, the question is often asked, how many hours sleep do we need? So the, what they suggest is the range is probably seven to nine hours on average. Okay. But when you look at the current data, particularly data from the States, suggestions are that the average person is probably sleeping about 6.5 hours so anything below seven is effectively sleep deprived right and that's the average okay so you have some people who are 
probably above. Some people are way less. Mm. So when I'm often talking to people and uh, I say, you know, you probably need the sweet spot of around eight hours. And they said, oh, yeah, but I hear Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan slept on less than five hours. But what was very interesting, both of them suffered from Alzheimer's in later life. And there's been associations uh, with sleep deprivation and Alzheimer's. Okay. So without getting in too much into the science. So one of the things that um, happens at, at nighttime is this... Um, a toxic protein called beta amyloid, which is what are like a plaque. So when you see people with Alzheimer's, they have this build-up of plaque on the brain. So when you're sleeping, you have this natural irrigation system which removes this beta amyloid. So if you're sleeping poorly, um, you're accumulating this uh, this plaque, which has been associated with Alzheimer's. And interestingly, the region of the brain called the hippocampus was where um, memories are created. We notice in a sleep-deprived individuals, that's the area of the brain that gets damaged first and foremost. And and there's an association, for example, between early-stage Alzheimer's and short-term memory loss. So there's a lot of interlinkage there. So if you want to have good memory function, good brain function, there's evidence building to show the importance of good sleep. And interestingly, a lot of the research is not about people who are sleeping well, it's people who are sleeping deprived. Okay. So that's what we're seeing. So there's a lot of things from a physical benefit as well. So so from a physical and a cognitive standpoint, sleep is so important. And very interestingly, um, things like immune function. So mm-hmm. they've done studies with um, night shift workers. And they found that in certain groups, the instance of uh, cancers, various cancers, is way above the norm. Um, for example, they've done work with uh, night shift female nurses and breast cancer. Very interesting. Now, the World Health Organization has now come out with a statement saying that uh, night shift work is a probable carcinogen. Wow. So that's, wow, that's uh, news. That's a, quite yeah. a statement. Yeah, it so, is. And the other thing I say about sleep is sleep is free. And how many things are free that we can get real benefit from? Yeah. And yeah. it's true, the best things in life are free. So we should be aiming for eight hours? Yeah. So, so, eight, so it is plus or minus. So eight is... Um, probably the optimum but there is some recent evidence suggesting if you sleep too much it could almost be as bad for you as sleeping too little okay so you can oversleep but very interestingly if you look at the kind of as you get older the suggestion is you sleep less clearly when you're an infant hopefully a, a good baby will sleep well but they need more sleep for their growth repair you know developing yeah. the nervous system and then as you progress onwards um, so the, the, once you get into adulthood, you need probably seven to nine hours. Some people say, oh, well, the elderly asleep need less sleep. But that's not strictly true. They probably need approximately the same amount of sleep time, but their sleep is more fragmented. What happens yeah. is that they're waking a lot more, primarily due to two reasons. One is probably pain, yeah. muscle, limb pain, which is causing them to wake. But also probably the need to go to, go to the mm-hmm. toilet more mm-hmm. at, at night time. Mm-hmm. But a really interesting group, and I, I'm going through this, and I know you're going probably going through it as well, is adolescence. So yeah, I was going when, to ask you about this. Yeah, when, yeah. When, when, when children go through adolescence, there's obviously the, the process of maturation and you know, the hormonal changes that take place. But you, you have two types of what we call chronotype. So you're, you're either a lark, a morning, annoying morning person who gets up early, <laughs> likes to you know do things early in the morning and then you have these people who are owls so in other words they tend to stay up very late and they work late into the night now i'm, I'm very much a, a, a lark so approximately 15 percent of the population 15 20 percent are pure larks or the pure owls and the rest are intermediate but what happens uh, during maturation is um, 
children, adolescents adopt this more owl chronotype and their body clock actually shifts by about two hours. So at night time, when it's 10 o'clock and you're saying, come on, you need to get to bed, their brain is telling them it's eight o'clock. In the morning when it's seven o'clock and you're saying, come on, it's time to get up, their brain is telling them it's five o'clock. And so I'm going to be slightly controversial here. So if we talk about schools and learning, if the object of schools is academic achievement, why are we getting our children to go to school at a time where they prefer to be asleep? And very interesting, and Matthew Walker talks about this, in the States they've done studies, and they, in one of the States they, um, they did a project where schools started later. So they started schools at 10 o'clock. In America, schools start earlier than here. Mm. So they started the schools at 10 o'clock, and two key things happened. What do you think they were? Student performance. Student performance dramatically improved, and early morning car fatalities dramatically reduced. So sleep-deprived parents driving kids to school. So the message would be, if schools are purely about academic achievement, and now I know they're about a lot yeah. more, our schools should be starting later. Now, of course, you know, parents have to drop to school, and there's logistical and challenges. But it's just interesting to bear in mind. So it isn't so much that uh, kids are lazy or, you know, they want to stay in bed. It's their, their chronotype, their body clock has changed. And that will be for about six to eight years. Yeah. Two I, hours is a huge amount of time for that yeah. to switch over. Like, yeah. yeah. And I think parents of teens probably get this. You know, yeah, they, yeah. You, yeah. you can see it that the, um, the winding down for, you know, you're chasing your teens to say, come on, it's this time and we have school in the morning and you're trying to get yeah. the sleep routine going. Um, and I always feel super guilty pulling them out of the bed in the morning. Yeah. And it just... So there is, there is a little bit of science to say, well, they're not, they're not just being lazy. Yeah, and isn't that really interesting? It does challenge the whole notion of schooling, but then we need to challenge a bit of the schooling yeah. thing, yeah. how we think about it. Yeah, and I, I think another, another one is, so the questions I'm often asked are around how much sleep do I need? Uh, how can I improve my sleep? And I think a lot of that's where people come. So I tend to use a simple toolkit. Okay. So the, the things I would emphasize is routine. So going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time. And simple things I would do is I, I just have a little alarm on my phone around 10 o'clock and it just comes up with a message that says time to get ready for the sleep zone. Hmm. I like to try and be in bed if I can by half past 10, quarter to 11. So it's, it's, it's routine um, is, a, is a key thing, um, having that routine. And I'm going to sound like a bit of a killjoy. And that does mean trying to avoid excessive sleep-ins at weekends. Okay. Um, now, people will do that because they, they may be trying to bank or recover recover sleep. So r routine would be a, a critical piece. Um, the next next one would be that the bedroom is a sanctuary. So, you know, when I'm talking to adults, I'll be saying the bedroom's for two things, sleep and sex. Okay? <laughs> and uh, but Sounds what, okay. what we do is we nest. So, you know, we've got the big plasma TV on the wall. Yeah. Probably even worse is phones and iPads because you get this blue light from them it's meeting yeah, so yeah. one of the ways that will cause you to sleep you have this sleep wake cycle so uh you know the, the the biological clock so when when it's daylight your brain is stimulated and you're going to be awake and alert and at night time um you, you release this uh, hormone called melatonin melatonin causes you to sleep so if you're using an ipad or a phone late into night you're you're emitting blue light so your brain is being tricked to thinking it's daylight so you don't release as much melatonin, so your sleep's going to be compromised. Okay. So, so what I'd be saying is that the the the, the bedroom is a sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So again, with, with going back to kids, if you have the luxury of space in the house, I wouldn't encourage them to do homework in the bedroom. I would encourage the homework to be done in a separate room. Okay. Um, for that, yeah. so that, that that that's important. So having the the bedroom as a sanctuary. The next one is sleep hygiene. 
So what I mean by that is the bedroom should be cool, should be about 18 degrees, it should be dark, and it should be quiet. Okay. And, um, you know, again, not having too much heat, you know, too much uh, bedclothes on, this kind of thing um, would be important. Now, that's an issue in the summer when it's very light. So mm -hmm. I always encourage, you know, uh, light blocking curtains mm -hmm. um, would, be a, would be a key thing in there. So have it, having it as, a, a, as a, a good environment to sleep and related to that, people say, well, what do I do if I wake up in the night? Well, the advice I always, always give is stay in bed for about 20 minutes and try and just relax and see if you can fall back to sleep. If you can't, you're probably better to break the cycle. So rather than think, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, get out of the bed, go into a separate room, particularly if you're sharing uh, the room with a, a partner, keep it relatively dimly lit and engage in sleep-promoting activities, a paper book, for example, not a, not a Kindle or anything like that. I find when I go to bed, if I read two or three pages of a book, the eyelids are drooping and yeah, then I'm gone. Me too. So if you can go into there, it could be things like counting backwards from a 1,000. Just really mundane activities. Um, and then after a while, when you feel the little bit drowsy, go back into the bedroom. So, but the other thing is don't panic because, you know, you are getting some recuperative benefit from rest, from just lying in bed mm. rather than just sleeping. So that's, mm. a, that's that one. Um, we know that things like exercise and nutrition are important. Regular exercise promotes sleep. But what you should try and do is avoid intensive exercise close to bedtime. Now, this happens because people might be working all day yeah. and they may be playing five-side soccer and it happens mm. to be that their, their, their session is 10 o'clock. Yeah. That's probably not going to help the sleep. But we do know if you do um, moderate exercise, you know, it could be a walk with a dog or whatever, um, that will help promote sleep. So try and avoid uh, intensive exercise close to bedtime. Also, with meals, um, try and avoid large meals before for bedtime. Mm. Um, and and we, we've been doing some research. I uh, have a PhD who's graduated now, Ronan Doherty, who's done some really nice work. And he just published a systematic review uh, looking at nutrition and sleep in athletes. But it has applications to other populations. So there's different food types that you can use that can promote sleep as well. Okay. Yeah. Be so so there's better natural food sources. Um, but then there's things like um, caffeine. So, you know, caffeine is a, is a stimulant. So I love my coffee. I love my mm, caffeine. Me too. And what I try and do is uh, minimize caffeine intake after two o'clock in the day. So I have all my caffeine hit in the morning and then wind it down because of that, that will be a stimulant. So that's one to consider as well. But then things like alcohol and smoking. So, you know, people, there's this um, false view that uh, alcohol promotes sleep. What actually happens is you fall asleep very quickly, but your sleep is like the elderly. It's very fragmented. Mm. So you're, you're, they've done studies and they've shown this fragmentation. So you're moving around a lot. You're, you're probably dehydrated and you're probably having to get up in the night to go to the toilet. Yeah. So it's, uh, alcohol, although it's a sedative, it doesn't promote sleep. And the other one is smoking. Apart from the, the carcinogenic effects of smoking, smoking is a stimulant. Mm. So if you're smoking cigarettes in the evening, okay. that's going to stimulate you. And one of the... Um, a couple of other things I would I'd say as well. One of the things that I find very beneficial is having a notebook by the bed, paper notebook. And what I would tend to do is encourage people to just to do a reflection on the day. What went well? Going back to the WWWs. Are the things I need to think about for the following day? And then turn the book over. So what you're doing, just starting that offloading process. Yeah. So you know, at night time, you're kind of clearing out the short-term memory filing yeah. cabinet. So if you, if you do that, it then is probably going to reduce the chance in the night, oh, God, I've got to do that tomorrow. I've got to do yeah. this. Yeah. You start that process. So a notebook is, is, is useful, yeah. for, useful for that. Um, so they will be the main things. But I, I think um, uh, practices of meditation, um, meditative music, and, you know, some people are into it, some are not. Mm. But I say try things that are beneficial for you. So I actually like a bit of white noise music to help me sleep. 
So th those kind of things. So I think if you if you look at those things first and foremost, and try and address those um, to see um, whether they'll improve sleep. Now, if they're not, it may be an underlying medical condition, and you may need to go and sleep see a sleep physician. It could be sleep apnea, for example, yeah. or restless feet syndrome, that kind of thing. But I think it's it's addressing a number of small things, and unfortunately, humans like quick fixes, yeah. and they aren't always the answer. Yeah, and I think we 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 know. I'm, I'm just going to talk for school leaders at the moment, but the, there's a lot of stress and burnout in the profession, and there's some yeah. a lot of attrition in the, in in the profession at the moment. And I think sleep. I think a lot of school leaders are are struggling with sleep because their heads yeah. are racing. Yeah. So I I think the idea of the notebook beside the bed is a brilliant idea. I leapt up, kind of. I just gone to sleep and leapt up wide awake, yeah. and I'm looking at my hand where I wrote the thing. I need yeah, to yeah, do today because yeah, yeah. I didn't have a notebook and I had to not forget it or I couldn't get back to sleep. So that's a brilliant mm. piece of advice. Something to give simple people. and the, you know the best ideas are often very simple, but I find it works very very well. Yeah. And it's just getting into the habit of doing it. So yeah. literally for five minutes, bullet point what went well during the day and celebrate successes as well. By the way, yeah. And then yeah, you know, yeah. anything I need to do, and it just means that you're 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 freeing a bit of uh, memory space up to start that natural. Yeah. Clearing process. Yeah. And I do think as leaders, we make better decisions and we're more measured when we have rested. Oh, yeah. I mean, the difference in you, I when I reflect back on, on, I think, the years now, when I look back at how I'm working, I certainly know that when I've had sleep mm. and I've been careful to wind down in the, in the, each evening. Yeah. I'm a much better... Well, decision-making is another key part of it. You know, as leaders, you have to make tough decisions. But if you look at some of the, the big disasters around the world, a lot of them have been associated with sleep deprivation. So in Chernobyl, the, the operators, the technical operators, have been on shift for over 13 hours at the mm. time. And it was human error that caused that. There's been um, cases with uh, 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 plane crashes. Yeah where they've actually, the black box, they've looked at the the voice recordings and there was a kind of a sounding of a slurred approach. And yeah. as you say, if you're, a, if you're a key leader, you have to be on your game and yeah. be making the right decisions. Yeah. I think your, your, your focus even, your, even your, this is going to sound crazy, but even your measuring of distance when you're driving is deprived, yeah. I think, when you're yeah, tired. Yeah. Like, it definitely makes a big difference to all of that. Absolutely. Um, but as you say, like, the, the crazy part about it is that sleep is free, as you say, yeah, yeah. but also the tips that you're giving there are all... Easily doable. doable. Do you know what, you well, do you know what I always say? I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm not not a rocket scientist, and this is not rocket science. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very simple stuff. Mm. And probably people think, well, that's pretty obvious, but common sense is uncommon. Yeah, I, unfortunately, I have to agree with that one. Yeah. I think and becoming yeah. more uncommon. Can I? Um, so first, I'm going to say, listeners, think about your sleep. That's the most yeah. important thing, and take a few lessons from this, which I'm doing myself. But Something that I'm always uh, impressed with you about and that you use and that you talk about really highly is a bullet journal. Would you like to tell people yeah. about that? Because I think people could learn something about this. Yeah, so a bullet journal is a paper journal. And, you know, there's trouble I struggle with normal planning journals. They're very structured. The bullet journal, you shape and structure yourself. And uh, it was a colleague, a, a friend of mine, and a friend of yours, Kieran McDonagh, mm. who put me in. Oh, great colleague, yep. it, it was his, his wife, Roisin, who put me onto this. I had it with me, and I, I trust by it. So what you do, you, you create your plans, and it's a structured process whereby you, you develop it the way you want it, but it, it allows you to prioritize your program. It allows you to identify the things you have to do and make sure that you're achieving them. So when you achieve them, you, you mark them off. But what it also tells you, if you're putting the same thing in again and again and again, well, really, is that something that should be in that phase yeah. or should it be moved and migrated to another area? Yeah. So what I like, it, it's based around some core principles 
um, but you then adapt it to your needs. Mm -hmm. Whereas I find a lot of journals uh, are very structured. So the pages are all little squares with dots. Yeah. And then you you create it yourself, and you can actually go on to Bullet Journal. I think they have um, on YouTube a couple of clips yeah. how to use them. Yeah. And I, I, it took me probably about a month to get into it, but I would be lost without it now. Yeah. So I probably have a I probably get through about at least one or two journals a year, and I have that. And what I've done with mine, I use the back for all my meeting notes. So as well, so I have that yeah. um, within it. But I, I just find it a fantastic tool. Yeah. So it gives a structure, but it allows me to create the structure yeah. myself around my needs. And people use it slightly differently. Yeah, and it allows you, you know, to put your the stuff that you need to to think about. You, you I see you putting into it, or I yeah. see you in meetings. I, I can see the way that you're like you're or you're you're sort of now you're organizing as you're doing it's like yeah. i think it's become intuitive to you and i'm quite impressed with that but, but, but it allows you to say well hang on a second i keep writing this item i'm not addressing it so maybe it isn't a priority maybe yeah. that needs to be moving but the way you break it down you break it down by some people do it by day i think it's too much i do it by week but then you have your month um and then you have monthly actions yeah and then you could have a kind of a year phase as well so it's everything feeding in from the from the the long term back to the short yeah it's amazing i think you're very intuitive about these things and i know i don't know if you know this but but i'm going to say it but you changed my life in relation to i have a an, i have an eyesight problem and that light causes my eyes huge difficulty and i was struggling i didn't realize it was blue light and you introduced me to the remarkable tool which has utterly changed my life i do a lot of my work on it now and it's a tablet like a Kindle, but it's bigger, but I can read PhDs, I can write to people, I can keep meeting notes. Yeah. And it was because you could see there was a blue light problem and you just came mm. up with a solution for me. Mm. Um, I, I think very I think intuitive that, about that. that as well. You, you can get these blue light blocking glasses. Now, I wouldn't use them as a pure conversation to allow me to work into the night with blue screen. Yeah. yeah. But what I find is they're very useful if I'm working after six o'clock and I'm on a computer. And what it does is just emits some of that blue light. Yeah. And, you know, they can be certainly helpful in terms of eye strain and just trying to reduce the, the, yeah. the, the blue light yeah. you're getting. So, you know, when you're trying to prepare for that sleep zone, yeah. that you're not getting all this, this stimulus. I think, I mean, these ecological factors, these environmental factors that are around us are affecting mm. our work that we, we don't realize that they also make you tired. So when you have eye strain all the time, yeah. that's making you more tired and it's, it, it goes brings headaches it does everything and we're spending more and more time on the screen so Wait, i mean i know we're, we're back more face to face now but you know the idea that you know you can do eight meetings in a day you can't do yeah. that and you have to uh, have the breaks one of the the best things that happened to me pre-covid just before covid uh, i got a puppy and um monty's my kind of my best buddy mm -hmm. as well and you you, you, so you know we talk about monty <laughs> and he's grown with me but what he does when i'm working at home every 50 minutes or so he comes up and gives me a nudge in, yeah. the, in the leg and what i do i get up and I go outside and so i'm involved in a research called go green roots where we're looking at the influence of the green environment but also the blue environment water on health and well-being okay. with physical wow. activity nice. some really interesting research has come out to say that if you go outside for even 10 minutes you, your heart rate and blood pressure will actually fall so being in that environment and it's not to go out and exercise just to get just out go out for 10 and, minutes and, and, that's it. and sense the environment so listen to the birds feel the sound on your feet really be in the moment so you know taking those recuperative breaks because people think well if I just keep going I'll be better but you'll be yeah. more productive take a 10 minute break Come back to it. Yeah. You know, okay. so and just so, get out of the don't do the ten minute break yeah. in the kitchen, get out into the back garden yeah. or get out. So the so the dog give me the nudge gets yeah. me to do that. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, a, a dog, he's a black Labrador, they need a lot of exercise, so it forces me to walk every day. So yeah. again, just being physically active as well. Yeah. 
It's so important. Yeah, and caring for caring for another soul, another you know, it's uh, fantastic. I, th- I, I think, think we look after each other actually. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's really cool. We can it's all brilliant. Monty, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I I think Monty likes to chew things. Oh, he does. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, that's the downside. <laughs> so that's the downside. Um, so we we like to ask people who join us a few questions just to to round up. So um, I might start by asking you a leader that inspires you and why you've chosen them. Oh, um, well. I'll probably pick a couple if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned uh, Craig Sharp, um, my mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was just so influential to me now. Sadly, passed away now. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I mentioned Liam Morgan is somebody who has had a tremendous influence on my career. Um, if if I was looking at somebody historically, it would probably be Ernest Shackleton. Okay. I, I'm, a, I'm a big um, polar exploration and all this the historical mm-hmm. stuff I have a yeah. library at home but just in terms of his, his approaches and it's interesting a couple of books have come out recently looking at modern business and taking Shackleton's principles yeah. to that and I think they're very compelling how how he, he he led a team you know the endurance expedition you know how not one of them perished despite yeah. the adversity that they faced yeah. and I just his approaches I think uh Phenomenal. I think incredible insight about leadership. Yeah. Really, I, yeah. I'm yeah, yeah, definitely fantastic. Okay. So the next one is looking back on your journey. Is there anything that you do differently? <laughs> um, you know what? I don't think I would because I've been extremely lucky. Now it was a very. It probably isn't a good model because it was a very unplanned journey. But just I just luck followed me. But um, the the well, philosophy people make their own luck. Yeah, yeah, that, well, yeah, that's true. The, the philosopher Sanaka says uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm. So oh, yeah, I don't know okay. whether I wouldn't say I was overly prepared, um, but you know I, I think you do create your own luck. Um, so I, I certainly I don't think there's much I would have changed because the I suppose sport has given me the tremendous opportunity to meet some incredible people, but to travel the world. Yeah, so yeah. and then I was just fortunate to then have an opportunity to come into academia. And I think, you know, I do think at academics we work incredibly hard. It's a stressful job, but it's an incredibly privileged job. Mm. You know, we really are privileged people to do what we do. So and, and it's allowed me to continue my, my passion for working in sport as well alongside yeah. that. I'm um, I'm a sucker for a bit of travel. I'm disappointed we didn't hear more about that in the recording. <laughs> Maybe we might do another one. We might, yeah. <laughs> so, what advice? I mean, we do this anyway in our role as 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 um as PhD supervisors, and I say champions too because we champion yeah. our people, and I love that about our job. But so, what advice would you give to somebody starting out? Yeah. So at the beginning, I think I kind of alluded to it earlier. I said, seize the opportunities available to you. And, uh, you know, they are there. And obviously be a little bit selective. So don't try and please everybody. So be authentic to yourself. But I think the most important thing for me is do something you're passionate about. Yeah. I mean, my own experience, I was in the bank because it looked like a good career. Well, I absolutely hated it. Mm. I absolutely. Hated it. And, it, and it kind of forced me to ask the question, well, what are you passionate about? And I think, unfortunately, sometimes people are very driven by money. Your career is very long and money is important. You need to survive, etc. But have something you're passionate yeah. about because that really just brings a sense yeah. to the fore. I think that's what keeps you yeah. living. I think it's yeah. really important. Passion is important. So look, Giles, uh, you've been an amazing friend to me, but the, but I also feel, I don't know if you feel this about yourself, you are a natural leader. It's a privilege to be in meetings with you. 
and it's a privilege to know you and to seek advice from you and to bounce ideas off you. So to be able to bring some of that to, to the listeners on this podcast, I'm just thrilled we got to do this. I know I've been chasing you for a bit and you're quite busy. So um, I hope the listeners have, have really enjoyed it because I feel it's such a privilege to work with you every day. So I'm well, it's, been, it's a privilege to work with you and it's a pleasure to be both with both of you today. Yes, thank, so thank you Thank you, so thank you so for much. inviting me. It's a thank you. Really thank you. great fun. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks.